I would encourage, you know, everyone watching this to say, I can really get great stuff done. Things will act contrary to it. There are millions of other things I could be focusing on. But if I really put my mind to supporting things I believe in, it'll, it'll be shocking how much difference it'll make. A warm welcome to Philanthropy Bites, where you get to deep dive into the lives of inspiring and visionary leaders, all of whom are working to change minds and move money to address some of the most critical issues of our time. I'm Cheryl Fafaria from JP Morgan's Philanthropy Centre, and this podcast is brought to you by us and the Marshall Institute at the London School of Economics, whose director, Professor Stefan Chambers, is our host. We're here today with Richard Curtis, who is the mastermind behind Blackadder, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Love Actually, Notting Hill, Bridget Jones's Diary, and many more. But what we're really here to talk about is the other side of Richard's extraordinary life. He is the co-founder of Comic Relief, the creator of Red Nose Day, the instigator behind Make Poverty History Live Aid, and most recently, Make My Money Matter. Over to Stefan and Richard for more. Uh, welcome, Richard. It's an enormous pleasure to see you. Um, uh, you're in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm in Oxford. Uh, and for the next half an hour or so, we're going to be in the same room uh, in conversation. You were uh, born in New Zealand. Uh, you were educated uh, in the UK. Um, your uh, your film and television work uh, spans not the nine o'clock news, um, Blackadder, your films for weddings and a funeral, uh, Love Actually, Notting Hill, Bridget Jones's Diary, About Time, uh, Yesterday, um, uh, uh, which is an astonishing. Uh, an astonishing canon uh, of work. Well, although the films are suspiciously similar, um, <laughs> just change the actor and the actress. But there we go. Well, you you have a line in self-deprecation. I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure that all the people who've grown up with them would would agree. But what we're really here uh, to talk about is the other side of your rather extraordinary life. Um, I was trying to get an accurate last count of the amount of money you have moved for good causes. And I got to about £1.3 billion. Um, even if that's out by a bit, that's an astonishing uh, achievement. Um, and I'm really, really interested in how you got from your artistic career to your um, pro-social or philanthropic career. And I read somewhere that there was a time in around 1967, when your mother cancelled Christmas lunch um, because she was so moved by the Biafran famine. And so I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about how you got into the, into the movement business um, and Watch whether you could have predicted that as a little boy or as a, even as a filmmaker and a comic writer. Well, I mean, so often in life, there's an element of circumstance, peculiarity and luck. I mean, 
I've got a feeling my instincts in terms of sort of poverty might have been, we actually went from New Zealand to the Philippines. And I was very aware there, you know, as I drove to my wealthy American school that we were passing thousands of people living, you know, under corrugated iron. I think I did always have a sense that there was a fundamental unfairness going on somewhere. Um, I do remember my mum cancelling Christmas and being rather glad because it was the first time I was allowed to watch Christmas Top of the Pops, which otherwise coincided with Christmas lunch, but we just had beans on toast in front of the TV. Um, and But, you know, in my case, I really hadn't done anything noticeably charitable till Live Aid in 85, 86, and then someone asked me to go with them, not as the major mover, on a trip to Ethiopia and the Sudan, just a friend of mine for company. And while I was there, I saw the kind of things that changes your mind forever. I mean, people's motivation, sometimes people will have a relative who suffered something or, you know, been part of an incident. And in my case, it was this, you know, being there during this terrible famine. And ever since then, I've, you know, it just got branded. I'm very aware of the simultaneity of suffering. I do strangely wake up most days thinking I'm here and there are other people whose lives are impossible. They're living under the threat of domestic violence or they're refugees or they haven't got enough food. They've got to choose between buying medicine for their kids or, you know, food. So um, I've just got stuck with that. And, and then I did do the the starts of comic relief. And I suppose, you know, my real motivation or the real shock has been how if you open a door to the general public to become involved in things where they can change people's lives, they're astonishingly receptive to it. So first Red Nose Day, I thought we'd make three million, we made 15. So I had to do the second one and then we made 27. So, you know, when you think that's more money than I'll earn in my lifetime, uh, I've, I've been inspired and, you know, kept going by how super productive this kind of work can be because of people are just waiting for opportunities to do good things. And, um, and so anything you do has such a astonishingly, you know, big effect in comparison to the work that it takes you. It's interesting that you use the phrase simultaneity of suffering as something that that struck you. You know, while while we're having this conversation, bad things are happening, because one of the things that's characteristic of your of your art is probably is probably the simultaneity of joy or love. Um, and I wonder if there is that connection that you that you that 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 you know how to, as it were, prompt. Um, prompt positive emotions, um, but you're motivated by the recognition of negative ones. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's a strange thing that in a funny way, sort of artistically speaking, storytelling speaking, uh, my ability to simplify is, I think, sometimes very useful because people who are really in the weeds sometimes find it hard to communicate things. So you know, the Make Poverty History campaign, those three words summed up a 380-page document called Our Common Interests and were, you know, shockingly uh, facile to the people who did that, but very effective in terms of 
sharing the wisdom of that document with the general public. I was going to ask you about that talent for 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 sim- simplifying inordinately complex problems because you're a famous uh, supporter of the SDGs. Um, and they number 17, but if you do the math, they number 24,000 different initiatives. And I wonder whether you you worry uh, about the inherent complexity of those SDGs as they near as we get nearer and nearer their term fulfilment. Funnily enough, I argued with the UN a lot to try and get fewer SDGs, by the way. I wanted it to be 10 or 12, but I quite like the fact it's 17 because it is a complex world and it's a kind of messy prime number. All you can do is do things and hope they have some effect. And my suspicion at the moment is that the SDGs, one, I think their last five years will be great because it's a strong deadline. And actually, my biggest shock with them is how effective they've been for business. When you talk to the Secretary General, he says there's been more from business than there has been from politicians. And I think that they, as an organizing principle, which proves that every bit of behavior in terms of wages, gender equality, effect on the environment, all of these things, I think they've been incredibly useful for businesses to say, well, here's a document that we can, should align with and we'll make changes in every in all the ways that we behave so i mean i hope that the sdgs you know that many of them are achieved that many of them that they've accelerated progress and i refuse to be um you know demoralized by the fact that they we probably won't achieve them they'll have to be another bunch of things but they will have done a lot of good things i think when you're doing the kind of work i do here You've got to accept you take three steps forward and circumstances pull you back two steps, but you've still taken one step forward and that one step forward affects, you know, could affect a million people whose lives are as valuable as, you know, yours or mine or those of my children. And the big drift on, on, your, on, on your analysis, the maternal health, infant mortality, uh, food, water, disease... Um, the, the the big drift questions are trending in the right direction, is, is your view. Yeah, well, in many cases, you know, extreme poverty, but, you know, halved between 1990, 2015. I remember President Obama saying, actually, if I could be born into the world today would be the best day to be born into that world in the whole history of mankind. Um, And there are huge amounts of progress and, you know, signs of it, Uh, even, you know, in COVID, massive tragedy, but also the speed of the development of the vaccines and the distribution of the vaccines in wealthier countries. I mean, that's a massive example of where there's a lack of, you know, global responsibility and everything. But, you know, there really is good progress technology is making a difference renewable energies suddenly cheaper than fossil fuels you know when business supports the right things suddenly you get that that shift so i I just tend to notice the good things rather than the rather than you know the complexities um and i don't get demoralized by them i mean it seems to me that that one of the interesting places where storytelling and uh the state of the world are kind of bumping into each other at the moment is is the climate is is the issue of the climate crisis um and it it's at least possible to argue that one of the reasons 
um, uh, we ha- we are making slow progress is because it's so, it's a very hard thing to simplify. It's a really hard thing to create, as it were, um, e- emotional narrative out of because it's about science and it's about everything, you know, everything in the world. As as someone who has has um, made a career out of, ex- out of moving narrative and 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 storytelling what's the what's your climate position well look i think you know i I think there are big shifts happening in fact i think uh, someone said something really clever to me the other day which was that the weather used to be last thing on the news and now it's first thing on the news i mean unfortunately the actual evidence in the real world has become so dramatic recently that I think that nature is doing its job, you know, our job for us in putting it, making it so clear, so dramatic and so urgent. Um, I think the big shift narratively, which I've really noticed, strangely, when we did Make Poverty History in 2005, we excluded climate because we thought it was sort of too complex, a mixture, poverty and climate. And the joining of the planet people with the people people is what's really happened over the last five years. Everyone now knows climate is not only about landscape and animals, it's about people, it's about suffering, it's about economies and all of these things. So I do think that suddenly it's come into the center rather than being a slightly green issue. It's to do with the welfare of our children. It's to do with the value of our money. It's to do with all our consumer choices. So I think the stories there are actually accumulating. And when I talk to people of the younger generation, this kind of consumer revolution where they're wondering, you know, they're stopping flying, they're wondering where their clothes are being made. uh, They're wondering about local and sustainable food. I think the narrative is developing fast. You mentioned young people, as it were, having a uh, engaging with climate in a in a in a different way or in a more intuitive way. I've heard you speak, hopefully, um, about people a lot younger than us, about the activist movement. Um, presumably, you are hopeful and optimistic uh, about their ability to turn us around well i mean one of the problems with politicians always is not only are they you know in a very complicated situation but they're often i think solving the problems of when they were young and i think that you know we've now got a younger generation this last two years has been extraordinary the kind of pressure on that the young people are feeling and are putting on the older generation on the subject of gender, on the subject of race and on the subject of climate. And I think they're feeling it in their bones and they'll never recover from that. And they'll always see life through that lens. So I, you know, I'm hoping they'll get power soon and move fast. I mean, I do think in terms of sort of changing the world fast. There's a really interesting job to be done about turning this passion into effective action. I think young people are starting to do it in their own lives, as I just said. But I think how we turn it into an effective political tool that makes things move faster is is interesting. Well, it touches too on your point about corporations, um, because my guess is that their timescales are more sensitive 
to um, that kind of activism than our politicians who have a five-year election cycle and so on. But if your if your customers and clients and employees and um, uh, uh, supply chains are all embedded in this, as it were, activist consciousness, um, that would compel you only out of self-interest to change the way you behave. Yeah, and also a renewed sense of power, I think. You know, it's quite an odd thing. But to go right back to the beginning, you know, if someone has an investment fund and they shift their investment into sustainable investment, they're doing more than comic relief, you know, has ever done. I think you gave that figure of how much money we've made. And yet my new pension campaign has managed to be part of a shift of 400 billion pounds during the course of the last two years into sustainable investment. So I think one of the things is to say to people in business, your moment's arrived where your behavior will really make a difference. And also governments listen more to business leaders than they do, you know, to to youngsters. So, Richard, this this notion that, that you know, there are trillions of dollars in in people's pensions and that moving some of that money in a pro-social or more ethical or more sustainable mm-hmm. direction you know has the potential to dwarf even the even the work that you've done through through uh, comic relief and and so on D- did i hear in your answer a, a a hint that that treating treating that kind of investment capital and treating pension funds and corporations positively rather than negatively um, uh, uh, is, in your view, uh, uh, likely to have a greater yield. In other words, not saying thou shalt divest, but saying thou shalt um, support positive businesses. Did, did I pick up that hint or am I, am I over-interpreting? Yeah, it's a double-sided argument. You know, the disinvestment is interesting. One of the ways you, you know, the way I got involved in this was by watching a TED talk by Dr. Bronwyn King, a cancer doctor, had her first meeting at 35, you know, and asked for the first time, asked her financial advisor, where's my pension? And found out that three of her top six investments were in cigarettes. So she was actually killing more people than she was saving by, you know, her daily work. So the divestment thing does make you passionate. But the more I've thought about it, it's the investment thing. It's the idea that you could be supporting, you know, affordable health care, renewable housing, that it's not just cocoa farms in Kenya, but it's all sorts of interesting things in the UK yourself. It's really finding winners and backing those winners, but making sure those winners are good for people and the environment. So, you know, I think you're both avoiding harm, but also also doing doing good. I mean, honestly, when I first started to think about pensions, I'd never even thought my pension was invested. Suddenly I discovered here's this huge tool in my life, which I could with a bit of work, and it does take work to shift your pension, but I could actually every day be assured that I was doing some good with my money. And I think this is what is in the texture of how people are thinking, what can I actually do in my daily life? You add that to who shall I vote for and what charitable source, you know, charities can I support? Now you think, how can I as a as a person or as a business? You know, I hope everybody listening would leave today if they had one instruction and just check the pension and shift it into, you know, sustainable pensions. If instead of 
persuading organizations, pension funds, individuals to, to, to change their behavior. You were a foundation and it was yours to deploy. Do you have a sense of how you would deploy significant capital today? I think I do. Um, and, you know, I've watched many people and I admire a lot of what uh, they do. And I think a lot of people do have increasingly sort of mixed portfolios. I mean, just me personally, I would pick a really simple, mathematical, productive thing like vaccines, like food, like malaria nets, like, you know, food banks. I would keep that in my back pocket. I'd have that as my hit single that keeps me, you know, happy every day and the knowledge that I'm doing some of the easy things. I think if all you do is the hard things, that's quite hard. Um, I think the second thing that I would do is pick a passion subject and really focus on that, you know, an intelligent, well-organized mind doing research, you know, I might go for mental health because of my family experience of that issue. Certainly, you know, for the first 15 years in this business, I would definitely have gone for extreme poverty, you know, abroad and tried to see the big things that I thought were making the most difference. And then the third thing I think that I would do, which is the toughest, is to see whether or not my money could affect the organization of charity in some way. It's terribly frustrating at Comic Relief how much time we have to give to, you know, balancing our books and working out how to pay for our admin and everything like that. And I, I really, you know, I wish we'd had a benefactor who'd given us two million a year and then we could have spent two million on developing 10 new ideas which could have raised... 200 million over the years and then there's another thing which is charities aren't very well coordinated i mean we i had to desperately try and find 500,000 pounds to simply do live aid and yet live aid you know in its effect and the make poverty history were part of triggering 25 billion from debt cancellation and from increased aid and everything like that so um, and the fourth thing would be if you meet someone inspiring who's doing something good, back them, because lots of charities have amazing, charismatic leaders and depend on them. So I think I'd go for the quick win, the passion project, the person I believed in, and the structural aid in either administration or campaign building. That would, that would be my portfolio. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I know a lot of people who will pay a lot of attention to those four things. Can I ask you just to just as a kind of last thought, and, and you've hinted at it with your digital um, insight just then, what, whether you think that what you have done would be doable now, if you were, if you were 23 now, and you weren't writing comedy and television and movies, but you had the same instincts, as it were. You had your, as it were, mother's inspiration from, from 1967. What, what, what would you be doing now if you were 23? I mean, it's a hard question, but, but imagine. Well, it's not a hard question, Stefan, because she's downstairs in that my daughter has my instincts 
very differently focused, very much focused on gender and mental health issues. But she's going about things in a very different way. So she did a campaign um, to try and get, you know, free sanitary products into schools and all of those issues, period poverty, she called it. And it happened entirely online. It was done by her and three friends, not an organization. She got 2,000 young women and girls outside 10 Downing Street. She talked to labor politicians. The law got changed. Uh, you know, so I think that I would be doing it, but I would be doing it online. And I think she's not very interested in fundraising, and I'm obsessed by that. I mean, we had a film made in um, a few years ago by One Direction about an incredibly passionate three-minute film where they found out about malaria. It was viewed 63 million times online, and online, we made £35,000. We could have made £63 million if there'd been a button at the end that you could push straight away that would just give 50p on PayPal, you know. So I think I would be very impatient with, you know, the tech of that and how you make those things work. But I think it would be much more online. Well, con congratulate, con do congratulate her on the on the period poverty campaign about which I know because I have daughters of exactly the same age, equally, equally committed to a kind of activist um, insight. Um, there are so many things we could talk about. We could talk, uh, we could talk for hours. Um, uh, thank you so much, uh, Richard, for, for giving us your time and giving us your insight. So I'm very grateful indeed uh, for that notion that there is, as it were, an effective altruism play, a kind of, you know, most bang for the buck, malaria net, deworming. There's a passion play, uh, which is whatever it is has informed your life or informs your conviction uh, that you want to support. There's an organisational play, which is how on earth do we do we make this world that we inhabit, let's call it broadly the world of of charity um, um, more appropriate more effective more digitally sophisticated and last there's a talent play which is you know when when you back good people when you meet them and uh, expect them to do good things i think that's an astonishingly uh, impressive and coherent um, uh, uh, insight uh, and thank you for a fun conversation well <laughs> you're very you're very you're very sweet so i mean you know, my final sign-off would be you can't imagine a less promising prospect for doing charity good than me when I was 30. And I would say that most of the people listening are in a much stronger position than I was then. And uh, if, they, if you do focus, use imagination, enjoy yourself, keep optimistic, uh, I think all of us have much more, you know, power than we think we do. Next time, we will be continuing the theme of storytelling for impact with Cara Mertes, who has had an extraordinary career in telling stories as a documentary filmmaker at the Sundance Institute, at the Ford Foundation, and now most recently running the International Resource for Impact and Storytelling Project. Join us next time.